Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Welcome to the One on One podcast with your host. Juan Ayala. The language that we grow up with restricts our thinking and restricts what is possible for us to conceive of. And so he was very influenced by this. But it, he takes, Burroughs takes this to an entirely different level in the sense that he believes that language as a disembodied entity, that the information itself is actually a type of life form. And it's a type of life form which has constructed your body, your mortal body, your very fragile temporary body. It constructs your body to live inside of it to achieve its own form of immortality. Your mortality, your death is sustaining another information life form who doesn't have to die because you die for it. Welcome back to another episode of the Juan on Juan podcast. I'm your host, as always, make sure to follow the show on social media at the Juan on Juan podcast, tjojp.com. Call me, leave me a voicemail. It's a three minute, three minute time limit. So please, 407 476 4606. 407 476 4606. For those that want more of the show, patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast all that good stuff you know where to find me we're watching this on 
the YouTube, make sure to comment, like, subscribe. If you're on the RSS feed, leave a five-star review, all that good stuff. Share the show with your friends and family. And joining me, I am very excited for this for this episode because this guy, I found him originally when I was, unfortunately, <laughs> reading William Burroughs. And I came across that in an interesting way as well, which we can get into. But joining us today is Tommy Cowan. Did I say your last name right, Tommy? You did, yeah. All right, awesome. Cowan is a fellow Florida man. So welcome to the show for the first time, Tommy. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, I'm doing very well. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, when I when I stumbled across your paper, so I stumbled, I found you on YouTube and I listened to a few of your interviews that you did about William Burroughs because unfortunately these these sort of Crowley types, they're, they're interesting individuals, right? And I don't know if it's all for the right reasons, but I listened to, I think, three or four different interviews that you were on. And you talked about a few different things. And then I came across your academia page because I was trying to find a way to contact you. And as soon as I saw the, the titles to your, your papers, my nipples became erect instantly <laughs> when I was like devils in the ink, William Burroughs, Brian Geisen and geometry as a method for accessing intermediary beings. I was like, yo, this is the guy I got to talk to. Okay. So yeah, that's how I found your work, Tommy. Do you have any websites? Do you have any books that you want to plug anything that the listeners, if they want to check out your further work or your academia page, they can find you on there. Tommy P. Cowan. Do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, j- just the academia page really is is what I got going on right now. I'm in the middle of a PhD program, so I've been extremely busy with that and have allowed uh, publishing and, and scholarship to somewhat lag a little bit behind other things, but that's okay. I'm, I'm going to catch up soon. Uh, but I uh, I'm also an editor at a, an academic journal called Correspondences Journal for the Study of Esotericism. And so I'd love to plug that. Uh, everybody can find it online. If you just type in Correspondences Journal, uh, it should come up. Send me a link to that and I'll post it in the description for people to be able to click on it. And thank Absolutely, you. Absolutely. That'd be great. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me, Tommy. I really appreciate it. And before we get deep and dive off the deep and I have a few basic questions because it's not every day that an academic answers my email and is willing to come on the show they usually stay away from shows like mine because again I'm here I'm here to have a good time I'm, I'm here for a good time not a long time so you know we crack dick jokes we we make fun of things and we had this is a more relaxed sort of thing you know how academics can be they can be kind of stuck up and whatever so why William Burroughs? Because I know you did your, what was it that you did on Burroughs? Can you tell me what, I don't have it pulled up here, what you got your, what was it your? My my master's degree. Ma, was it master's? Yeah, I didn't want to say PhD because I know you're going through that. But what was the title of that? Because I don't have it pulled up here. Let me see if I can find you. Uh, I did my, uh, I did a, uh, a master of arts at the University of Amsterdam in uh, religious studies technically is what my degree says but i was in a very specific religious studies track there called western esotericism Uh, so that's my my scholarly sort of uh, specialty and uh my my thesis my master's thesis was about william burroughs 
uh, and I'm I'm trying to I can't even remember what I titled it. (laughs) Yeah, spirituality and esotericism in the works of American author William S. Burroughs. That's what I was thinking about. I knew it was wasn't your PhD. It was your master's thesis around this. Why Burroughs? And and how did you get even interested in the esoteric and the occult? Because it's all intertwined in there. What got you down this path? Yeah, I I have been interested in in religion and in what we could call supernatural or extraordinary experience for a very long time. But for as long as I can remember, it's always been something that's been very interesting for me, even uh, with things like folklore and mythology and stuff like that. But I became much more interested in it when I was 19 and I uh, tried psychedelics for the first time. And I would I would say psychedelics changed my life in many positive ways, but it also opened me up to a, a lot of interesting culture that was not necessarily popular in the sort of white suburban middle class background that I that I had. Um, I believe my the first psychedelic I ever did was psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, I thought they were really profoundly interesting. Um, continued to experiment. Uh, I believe the second thing I tried would have been called Hawaiian baby wood rose. So that's a a type of seed that has lysergic acid in it, which is the base for making LSD, but it's a psychedelic in its own right. And then the third psychedelic I would have tried was ayahuasca. I did ayahuasca back in 2004. This is all around when I'm around 19 years old. And uh, this this got me really interested in in uh, esoteric culture because uh, there's a huge overlap, and I, I think this uh, th- there's no good way to make a, a strong division between drugs and religion. I think I think psychedelic substances in particular have been very influential to human spirituality for hundreds of thousands of years, and the the ethnographic record I think you know, supports this. Um, I, I originally got interested in William Burroughs when I saw the David Cronenberg movie, which came out in 1991, but I didn't see it until about 2004. All, all of this stuff was happening around 2004. And it's such a bizarre, beautiful, interesting film. Talking about Naked Lunch, got right? Reading Burroughs. Yes, Naked Lunch. Yeah. Correct. Sorry. And then, yeah, once, once I started reading Burroughs, um, it's it's difficult and it's bizarre and it's offensive, but it's also so incredibly unique that I think it it repels about ninety percent of the people who attempt to read it. But there's a small group of us who get hooked on it for whatever particular reason. I, I think because it is so unique and it is so mysterious, and, but also at times incredibly funny. Um, it, it has a particular energy that I just don't find with a lot of writers. Yeah, my introduction to Burroughs wasn't Naked Lunch. It wasn't any of that. It was Cities of the Red Night. <laughs> and yikes. And I found that. I found that doing research. It was... I found information on the Cities of the Red Night in a... I think... I believe it was an OTO form. And it was about these obscene sexual rights that they were doing. And then 
the guy in there said something about the what they call he calls the trans migrants in that story and the the acts that they would do to again to project their souls into the into the next vessel i guess and the reason i was looking at this subject matter is because in the community uh, i've i talk a lot about the homunculus the alchemical homunculus and how you know there's tons of lore regarding this homunculus and i came across i was reading about crowley's moon child and some other the moon children and then i somehow stumbled across that. and when i started reading about burrows because mind you, the book is super, how are you saying it's super off-putting. So it could, it can really do a number on you when you're reading these sort of things. Like, it's like, this is what, this is, when I was reading, I was like, this is what people revere. This is, this is the burrows that everyone's like, and when you start to look into his history, you go, wait a minute. Okay. So there's a lot more to this guy. He murdered his wife. He was a chaos magician. He was doing what? And then all this craziness. Regarding and I and I told my buddy SB shout out to Sean because he was a little familiar with him. Yeah, this is the guy, kind of guy where people again they, we wish he wasn't so interesting. But there's something about these pioneers, right? And the and these what do they call it? The counter cultural pioneers where they were kind of against the mainstream and it was very abrasive, right? But without guys like Burroughs or without guys like Crowley or without guys like LaVey or whoever you want to put in there, right? A lot of esoteric guys and the occult, we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have today, unfortunately, right? I mean, and the use of writing as some sort of divination tool to me has always been something very fascinating. There's something magical about writing itself. The, the cartographer as magician, the architect as magician, the writer as magician, And again, the word magic can be kind of loosely put in there as some sort of device, right? Some sort of device to be able to manipulate reality in some sort of way. And that that's not too far fetched because quite literally. The the backs of a lot of religions, if not all of them, are based off of writing. They're based off of text. You know, I call it interdimensional literature where it's these text that resonate throughout reality and there's something about something about the solidification when you write it down and one of the basic questions i want to talk to you about is you know being an academic in this realm of esotericism what is esotericism or or the esoteric to you from an academic point of view because it's something that you you ask them it's like what do you do i'm i'm an esotericist like well what is even that it's like well i study burrows like who's that you know what is esotericism from the academic lens. I think you're one of the few academics that I've had who's who's in that field. Yeah, it, it's a great question, and it's something that is widely debated and widely disagreed upon within the scholarly community. Um, uh, I studied under a guy named Wouter Hanekraff, who is considered one of the most important scholars of esotericism today. He's He's been at the University of Amsterdam for a long time. He was responsible for setting up uh, one of, if, if not the first, uh, academic programs where you could get a degree in esotericism studies. He defines it as something which is, uh, he calls rejected knowledge in the sense that, and, and he's very f- uh, firm about using the specifier Western esotericism, wherein e- esotericism defines 
a particular form of thought, which is not necessarily religion and not necessarily science or logic, but uses elements of both of these things, and yet is also this cultural other, which both religion and science use to distinguish themselves from it, right? So it's, it is this other uh, suppressed form of knowledge, uh, which allows us to help define what is science and what is religion. That is um, one, I would think one of the most popular ways to define it, but it is controversial. Not everybody agrees. One of my uh, favorite articles on this subject uh, was written by a guy named Egil Asprim, who teaches in Sweden. And he did a linguistics corpus study of uh, the word uh, esotericism as it gets used in this book called The Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism, which is a really important book that came out some years ago. And according to how people actually use the word esoteric, it generally is most often used to refer to what we could call special knowledge. Um, and I, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's a very sensible approach because Asprim's actually looking at how the word gets used in day-to-day language in order to build his definition. But that, that definition also jives with things that other scholars have said in the past, uh, like an, an American scholar named Arthur Versluis, uh, who says that gnosis or gnosis is central to what esotericism is, this idea that people can achieve altered states of consciousness that allow them to rend the veil of normal waking reality and see a level of reality which is deeper and which is more ontologically primal or ontologically. And right, we're talking about definitions, we're talking about language, we're talking about letters. I learned from your paper the letterism i wasn't familiar with that uh, concept and do you know if if burroughs was inspired by james joyce at all a joyce joycean you know inspiration in his in his works absolutely he studied literature at harvard as an undergrad and read all sorts of things and was very influenced i think by a lot of Irish writers, uh, not not just Joyce, but also Yeats and mm. Samuel Beckett as well. Because, right, the restrictions of language, which is one of the core principles surrounding Burroughs, this idea of linguistics and being a sort of prison, right? Very uh, Dickian Gnosticism in there where the logos is the living word. And that I heard... I think it was Terrence McKenna talking about it at one point. And there's things that sometimes mainstream history doesn't answer. For example, like the Gnostics and what Gnosis was. It's like this idea of this sacred sort of knowledge that once you learn it, you know. But then all of the rituals and everything that we have with the Gnostics are very obscure. We don't know what they were for. We don't know what this vowel magic was for. We don't know what any of this was for. But And and I've always thought to myself, I go, well, what if once you learn the Gnosis, you fizzle out of reality? You you cease to exist. And I think it was Burroughs, if I'm not mistaken, that speaks about how there's a string of letters, a string of words that 
quite literally can unravel you and destroy you and and i guess make you not be here anymore and and that's always been a concept because there is things that like things that we talk about even the nature of uh, the nature of reality that's why that's why i love the the occult magic any really any esoteric ideas because they were trying to how you mentioned at the beginning like why is religion a thing why are these symbols a thing there's obviously something more to it and i don't know if the answer is psychedelics and maybe psychedelics let you peer to the other side and let you right because it all has to do with the grid which i want to get into here in a little bit but this idea of doing away with linguistics and what I got from it was from his works, the reasoning for the obscurity and the nastiness for, for lack of a better term, like the, the, you know, the uncleanliness of it is to obliterate the consciousness of the reader. Like you're partaking in a sort of initiation Right. As you're reading these texts and you're trying to really process what it is you're reading. Like, what are you what can you speak on that, on that aspect of the linguistic constraints, the language being a sort of extraterrestrial virus parasite, if you will? Yeah, that's something he's very famous for saying that language is an alien virus or language is a virus from outer space. Uh, and Burroughs is influenced by a lot of uh, people in this regard. Um, one person uh, he was influenced by was the Count Korzybski, who was uh, a Polish, American Polish intellectual, early 20th century, who had a lot of ideas about language and how the language that we grow up with restricts our thinking and restricts what is possible for us to conceive of. And so he was very influenced by this, but it, he takes Burroughs takes this to an entirely different level in the sense that he believes that language as a disembodied entity, that the information itself is actually a type of life form. And it's a type of life form, which has constructed your body, uh, your your mortal body, your your very uh, fragile temporary body, it constructs your body to live inside of it to achieve its own form of immortality, right? So your your mortality, your death is sustaining another information life form who doesn't have to die because you die for it, right? Um, and th this this has gone over in a little bit more detail in a, a text he wrote called Aphuk is here, and he gets a little bit more explicit about it. Although it's it's still extraordinarily difficult to understand as Burroughs explains it, e even at his most explicit, he's still a little dense. And how um, do you spell that? You said Aphuk is here. A P Aphuk A H P O O K Aphuk is here. And Apuk is uh, one of the Mayan gods of death. Oh. So, but um, uh, uh, one of the things that's so interesting, I think, about Burroughs and, and about cut-up writing in particular, this writing style he developed where he was cutting up particular texts and rearranging these elements in order to look for sentences that he likes, which would then... Once he gets these new sentences, that these scrambled sort of sentences, he would then look in his environment for synchronicities to see if they come true. 
but he's he's also using the this type of writing to produce altered states of consciousness he wrote in a letter to timothy leary one time him and leary knew each other a little bit and he was he burroughs turns his back on psychedelic drugs in 1961 he starts uh, he has an intense period of experimentation with psychedelics which uh you know lasts from the late 50s all the way through 1961 Uh, but in 1961 he just starts having bad trips over and over again he can't have an enjoyable psychedelic experience anymore so he's convinced that psychedelics is a tool for demonic entities or archons to take advantage of us and so he writes a letter to timothy leary trying to convince leary that drugs are not the way and that you can get high just by reading right but <laughs> reading cut up writing specifically and and i think it's interesting because when when you get into some of these passages from his most let's say his most unusual or most courageous kind of works such as the soft machine and you and you're reading this type of experimental cut up writing for long periods of time you know 5 10 15 pages straight of cut up writing you you do enter a different mode of thinking and your your reading becomes very passive and mm-hmm. you you end up slipping into this passive reading and reading several pages that that aren't really registering consciously you're going to this unconscious sort of trance like mode and then you'll snap back into a real scene that actually has a, a regular narrative structure and it's like jumping around in time as though it's a dream and so for him it was also uh, not, not just a way to aesthetically represent what dreaming and consciousness is like, but to allow the reader to enter particular trance states uh, for a variety of reasons. So one reason why you might want the reader to enter a trance stage is to sort of break down the cultural and linguistic programming, which is restricting their thinking in the first place. But there's also ritual elements involved, uh, most particularly ritual elements of violence. So, uh, in in the 1968 version of the Soft Machine, which was uh, published in the UK, which is kind of hard to find now, I don't think they've done a reprinting of it in a very long time. Um, you uh, you and you begin reading uh, several pages of cut up writing, um, and then you're snapped back into a scene uh, of a of a man in a hotel room in Morocco which uh, is, is actually this hotel room that the guy's in is actually based on a, on a real place in Morocco that Burroughs lived in that he thought a demonic entity uh, was haunting. And the, and then the demon appears in this guy's hotel room and he attacks it. He attempts to kill it. And so uh, it's, and so, I mean, there's a, there's this incredibly complex picture going on where the, the book is forcing the reader into a trance state and then dropping them off in this, uh, in this basically real location where this fictional battle with a demon takes place. And what Burroughs believes is probably a real demon that exists there. So he's using literature to, to transport his intentions through time and space to this place and to, and to commit violence against this intermediary being. Whoa. So you said a lot there, Tommy, you're, you're, you're <laughs> the, 
language alien virus information as a sort of life form that uses you as a vessel you die off for it and the information continues to live wow and yeah and that's why it's when you are reading cut up it is a lot of times and i'm sure people can relate and think about this the powers that be they don't want you writing anymore actual writing you know writing actual pen to, well obviously this is an, an electronic version i use a remarkable but you get what i'm saying they want you typing so you're disconnected because my retention at least for me goes up drastically when i'm handwriting notes obviously it's not a due to time constraints it's not a good choice but it is something more personable about journaling you have young also talking about journaling your dreams and and all these different things so the the art form of writing itself and then reading people don't really read anymore nowadays and we literally have all the literature that we could possibly want at the at our fingertips at any point in time and so getting high from reading that's such an interesting concept i never understood it and a lot of times when you're reading a book where you your mind starts to wander and it might not wander on something you know esoteric or metaphysical but it might wander about like did i send that email and you're still reading as or even when you're doing an audiobook your mind will wander you're not paying attention to the words that are being said and this can apply to anything to a movie to whatever to a conversation your mind will start to wander and you find yourself you know when you're reading you go, oh let me reread that again because I, I wasn't paying attention you know as you're actively reading so you go back but the cut up method is so distracting and i'm a kanye west fan Right. We know Kanye West hasn't had the most the best reputation recently, but there was a song that I always wondered why this part was in it, because, again, these artsy types, you're like, this is what people look up to. This is this is one of the masterminds. And that one song, Lift Yourself, that came out in 2018, where at the end it was poop de scoop, scoop de whoop, whoop de scoop de poop poopty scoopty and it goes on and on in this weird joycean kind of thing and now it's making sense what if kanye was sort of tapping into this more joycean than anything because when you rejoice james joyce is like it's like glossolalia like what do you what like it, it's it, and it's about this idea maybe i don't know if they were i'm sure that they were doing it on purpose but there was this one quote that i read and i think it was terrence mckenna where they talked about how james joyce said if humanity was to end i want this book and i think it was either finnegan's wake or the other one i want this book to be what they use to if they you know if people find this in the rubble that is that is left over it's the only thing that they find i want them to rebuild humanity from all the letters in this book that's that's a big you're, you're you're digging deep if that's what you want your obscure piece of writing that is one of the hardest pieces of literature ever to ever read in the history of literature you want them to kickstart reality and humanity back again from these words you know well i i think yeah i i think <laughs> i think it's really interesting too as well that there's this explicit connection between the book and the end of civilization. Like the, the book must be recovered from the rubble. It's almost like that is 
uh, being willed into being. And, and I think we see this in a, a lot of esoteric writers in modernism uh, that this, this conflux of esotericism in literature that we, that we see in Burroughs, but not just in Burroughs, also in Joyce and in Yeats and in Plath and, and like many, many authors, Ezra Pound, um, sort of central to this, or, or it, if not central, at least in the background of this, is sort of this idea that modernity and modern civilization is an affront to the spirit of, of human beings. And it, it's, a, it's a form of violence uh, against our true spiritual nature. And I think, yeah, p- part of part of sort of the, the dense, confusing nature of cut-up is a war on information itself and a, a, a war in which the the end of civilization wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. And Bur- Burroughs has uh, intimated as much in interviews that, you know, and it pop, uh, depopulation was something he was very concerned with and he thought it would, it would be a really good thing, but that it, it maybe had to be done through catastrophic means, but he, he would have been willing to go there. Uh, and that, but that you know, modern civilization needed to be taken apart and reduced. And part of the effort of doing that is this war on information through literary aesthetics. Well, this ties into what we talked about at the beginning, right? And it is right to to quote the great Alex Jones. It's an it is an info war. It is. It's been about information. <laughs> Depending on which cosmology you follow, it's been about information since the conceiving of humanity and humankind in the Garden of Eden, in this other realm where it's like, yo, you can do whatever you want here. You can have whatever you want here. There's just one thing you can't have. Well, what's that? Don't eat from that tree. All right, cool. Fair enough. Leave it to a woman to go ahead and do the opposite. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Before people go crazy in the comments. It's a joke. It's a joke. But, right, we all know that story. It's about the knowledge of good and evil, right? So knowledge, and it ties into esotericism, to occultism, to all these things where it's a group of people having access to knowledge that they believe they should only have access to. Only the initiated will have access to this information to, and I think it was Rosicrucian cosmology or symbolism by, I forgot who 1912, I think it was written. This has always stood out to me where to the uninitiate, this text means one thing, but to the initiated, it means something completely different. Those letters transform and, and they can read kind of sort of between the lines. And I wasn't aware that he, obviously I read, Cities of the Red Knight, where it's about, where essentially the the virus, I forgot what he called it, but just kind of makes everyone, it's, it's making me think of, of a South Park scene where the dad like jizzes everywhere. And, and, and when I'm reading about this virus that it's like, it drives everybody sexually mad and they're just, wow, they're just jizzing everywhere. It's like, it made me think of South Park. And I just think like those guys definitely are either mimetic magicians you know, using memes or, or something. Cause if you think about a Rick and Morty or like a South park or any obscure, like Ren and Stimpy, 
we grew up with i mean at least i'm i'm 29 i don't know how old you are tommy but i grew up with these cartoons that were kind of this sort of literature but in a different medium very chaotic very weird and abstract and it's like what is going on here right and i think there's something about writing something about storytelling and being able to write something down where it's a different medium it's a different sort of media because you're able to not how you said transport the literal consciousness of your reader somewhere else and let them and there's something powerful about letting them themselves visualize what the characters look like what the scenes look like versus a movie where kind of it forces that that that's also powerful it forces that picture on you you ever read a book and then watch the movie and you go it's not how i pictured them you know what i mean like it, i kind of liked it better when i could read and just kind of form that own my own picture in my head and then reading is one thing where you can quite literally again due to under the constraints of language where you can only describe things a certain way right you can paint a crazy picture, but then you use audio, which they were using the trans music in the, in the, I think it was Geisen, right? The, the trans music. And it made me think of Philip K. Dick's Correct. synchronicity music. So the sound, the radio, right? When the radio came out, radio is a little bit different. Like sound is a little bit different because you can add sound effects and then you can take that immersive experience and drive it deeper. You know, you can take, you can, was it when what was that one thing that they played where they people really thought that the aliens were taking over what was that do you know what i'm talking about in the, like the 1950s uh, orson welles orson uh, do, do war of the worlds yeah war of the worlds that was radio broadcast where people were calling like oh my god there's aliens taking a 1938 radio drama the War of the World, 17th episode of CBS radio series. So radio really also, I guess, sound media, right? Kind of changes this up because you can add sound effects and you can, every character can have its own voice. And it kind of, right, it brings it more alive versus before that people were just reading things and letting their imagination go wild. So the... You talk about oh, Burroughs, uh, you quoted him where he's talking about these entities that spring forth from right the devils in the ink, these things that spring forth from the writing. How many characters, because you just, when you talked about language, information being a life form, I'm just thinking of how many people within history weren't even real and there were just like these ink egregoric beings that sprung forth from these writings like pythagoras pythagoras there's no written records from pythagoras himself it was all written after by Implicus, and it's like was pythagoras one of these devils in the ink if you will that came forth just from the writing and became alive because of the writing and if the writing would have never happened would we have pythagoras how many people yeah. in history, Tommy, are these devils from the ink that emerged from the ink? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an excellent open sort of question. And I mean, even if Pythagoras was a flesh and blood person, certainly the impact that he had through writing 
is is what allows us to talk about him today and was so much more impactful and important than whatever he could have done during his own lifetime in, in a particular sense. And, and, and maybe this is one of the problems with the, the, the immortality of information or certainly uh, let, let's say the, the extended more, the extended mortality that, that information has over flesh and blood is that once the flesh and blood is gone, the information lives on and continues to change and evolve and, and go through various transformations. And maybe in some ways that's good and that's bad. Um, you know, if, if Pythagoras was really not a great guy, maybe it's better that we just have, you know, the stories about him from, from Iamblichus, but, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Pythagoras actually had a, a particular doctrine that was well beyond and much more important than what survived in the writing as well. And in that sense, information uh, is is also a way to obscure uh, the the impact that people had during their lives. And I mean, I mean, it, it also gets into this this particular psychic realm of you know of tulpamancy or, or the egregore uh, in the sense of if a if if a, a character emerges totally from the mind of another person and is put into writing. At, at what level does it become real? At what level is it actually uh, a flesh and blood or material entity in its own right? Because thoughts have materials. And if the character exists in thought, it has to have some material existence that that is corresponding to all of that. And then that, that brings the question, it's like how many thoughts are not even our own because that, that's that's also another concept where it's where do thoughts originate from and that you can clump that in with what is consciousness what is reality what is everything else because it's just making me think of again back to this platonic thought of plato talking about remembering everything and there's something to be said about that because people remember different lives that they had at one point in time. And not only that, but right, this, this idea of visualization and being able to enter, or we can talk about Hinton and being sucked into the cube or into the geometry, into the hypercube, right? This sort of weird thing. But the idea of that in your mind can exist an entire universe per se, right? An entire cosmology. If you look at all these writers Right. And characters, not only just not only characters that are created for a story, but also characters for writing. They're called characters, right? The, the letters are characters. But it's always fascinating to me that I can visualize anything I want at any point in time. Things that I haven't even seen or experienced where you can visualize that. And I don't know if it was your paper or what I was listening to where it talked about how sometimes the mind will come up. So if, when you're remembering something, the mind will sometimes come up with scenarios that didn't really happen when you had that experience, but it fits better with your brain. I don't know whether that was your paper or not, because I've been reading a lot these past couple of weeks, but it was the idea that when people are remembering something, they don't remember it how it's supposed to be, because sometimes the brain will kick in and fill in gaps for them. So you can't even trust your own memory sometimes, right? 
speaking of the art of memory or whatever. But yeah, the, the brain will come in there and fill things in. And it's like that idea morphs into something completely different. And I don't know how many times you've been somewhere where you go back and revisit, you know, you were somewhere childhood and you go back as an adult and it's completely different than you actually remember it. It's like your it was your brain kicking in, but the concept of being able to visualize monsters, things, you know, landscapes in your mind by just closing it. And I don't do sensory deprivation anymore, but when I would do the sensory deprivation, that was one of the things where your mind would just wander to just weird, crazy places. And I think that's where maybe, maybe, right, the Mundus Imaginalis, in my opinion, is a real place and you are able to pull things out. And maybe that's what I know it's a big word. Quantum computing does because, I mean, they've talked about how they extract information from parallel realms and drag it down into hours and they're able to extract information. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. But what if I believe that the original computers was this and I want to get into the the quadromancy, I think is what you called it in your paper. But before I do that, there's a book or I think it's a collection of works. It's called, it's by, it's about Anastasius Kircher, Athanasius Kircher, The Last Man Who Knew Everything by Paula fin, Findlin, Findlin, I guess that's how you say it. And in it, it right, we're talking about the idea of information living and existing, and essentially that's immortality. And there's something in this book that it was about portraits at this point in time. I think Kircher was... I want to say 16th century, if I'm not mistaken. Let me double check that before I spread fake news. But Kircher was 17th century. So 1602 to 1680. Jesuit scholar. He was a polymath. And he had some, he has a very interesting, very interesting history. But one of the things in this, one of the papers, I guess, in this collection is quasi-optical palingenesis the circulation of portraits and the Im- the image of Kircher and essentially they get into the idea of they believe that they could achieve immortality by having their portrait taken and that that would exist on its own and, and it kind of would carry on their Im- you know it's just their image that would and it's quasi optical palingenesis and I'm I'm a sucker for like cool catchy names that's why I loved your paper right the devils in the ink and the idea of intermediary beings and being able to access that but yeah, the the idea of existing forever. And I'm in Florida. We're in Florida. And we have Juan Ponce de Leon, who might have not even been a real person. Christopher Columbus might have not even been a real person, right? When you start to look into the history. And the idea of immortality, the fountain of youth. Wanting to achieve immortality. Which, what if you achieve immortality as long as people remember your name, just simply remembering your name, as long as they remember it for forever. And maybe that's why the elites, the the lizard people, as I like to call them sometimes, if they are lizards or not, doesn't matter, name streets after themselves. They name buildings after themselves. They name cities after themselves. Like all these different of the name needs to be alive. The letters, the characters within that name, that's the living information, Right. That's the the living logos that was frozen. Yeah. And the Dead Sea Scroll, the Nag Hammadi, whatever it was, you know? And yeah. But do you have anything to to talk, to, uh, to say about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to 
to look at Burroughs from this perspective as well, because he was very influenced by the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Books of the Dead, as we might say, wherein the Egyptians believed that the soul had to go through an arduous journey after death in order to achieve immortality, and it wasn't guaranteed. And so there were particular things that the grieving family or, or priests or um, various other officials would have to read uh, in order to guide the soul of the deceased. And Burroughs is incredibly influenced by this idea, and it informs a lot of his work from Naked Lunch onward, wherein the ritual elements of the book are not just violence against demonic entities, but they're violence against demonic entities in an effort to create his own immortality. So Burroughs sees the books as generating a, a metaphysical realm where wherein his soul can enter after his own death. Wow. And you're not supposed to read the book of the dead of your life. It's, it's interesting too. I, I think it's, yeah, right. Um, but you know, I, I think I think from Burroughs' perspective, the the fact that other other people did read it was you know part of this group mind uh, generation of of the me- the metaphysical realm through the consciousness of other people. This this was uh, part of the ritual apparatus. Let's say is is the fact that there is an audience, right? Yeah, the. The observer effect. I think there's something to be said about that. And I think that's why ceremonial magic is a thing. Uh, because, right, the world is a stage. And we all have our entrances and exits. That's coming directly from one of the most influential people on in the English language. Which some people say wasn't even a real person. So I'm just, you're making me think about all these people and these characters that could be intermediary beings. And I want to talk about that concept, intermediary beings. And then we can get into the square magic and I have some ideas that I've been just kicking around all day waiting to talk to you. But these entities that can spring forth not only from literature and from the ink itself, from these books themselves, but also from the geometry. But you can call them whatever you want. You can call them angels, I know you talk about the jinn a lot in the in the paper, but these idea of outside entities. Now, from your research, is the right so would the writing be the entity, or is the writing a medium for these entities to interact with you? And then, I mean, the, we know, and, and the reason why this is so interesting to me is, and for those that want to believe otherwise because you're going to have the people from the train of thought that none of this exists none of this you know you have atheists who we're just here you know the panspermia whatever they call it where we just land on it and then things evolved and, and we can't go visit chosenone.com it's easy to remember if you just sing along chosenone.com Go visit chosen one.com. The chosen one. Yes, he is a chosen one. He's got his own comic. And now he's got his own song. Cause he's the chosen one. Yes, he is a chosen one. Go buy a copy at chosen one.com.
you just sing along Chosenone.com Go visit Chosenone.com And forth from that, there's no, there's no such thing as God and all that stuff. And then you're going to have people who believe in the metaphysical and the paranormal and the supernatural and all these other aspects of a different reality because there's so much evidence to account for stories of these intermediary beings, which could be angels, jinn, demons, elementals, if you want to call them that too. And when you bring in the geometrical aspect of it, you start to go, well, where did we get lost in this etymological prison or puzzle where angles became angels, right? So, and if you read some of the literature, these entities you encounter on the other side, I don't know if you've done, let me hit the button. Have you ever done dimethyltryptamine? You ever done DMT, Tommy, where people encounter these geometric beings on the other side and they see the grid and all that stuff? And the grid is part of, again, the psychedelic experience where the mind creates the grid. Can we talk a little bit about these beings? And uh, do they are they the writing? Do they come from the writing? Is the writing the medium in which they're able to interact with us? How does it work? Can you break that down for us? Yeah, it's, it's something which is sort of mind-bending to think about in the, in the sense that a letter or a glyph is a geometrical form of some kind. And so if we create a letter to concentrate on and to try and summon an intermediary being like a jinn or a ghost or a god, um, we, don't, we don't necessarily, I think, have to make a particular distinction as to whether or not the god is the letter or the letter simply communicates or creates an environment in which the God can inhabit. It it can be all, all of these particular things. And one of the reasons why I think geometry is so interesting, and I I talk about this a little bit at the, at the end of the devils in the ink article uh, is that I, I think geometric hallucinations, let's say, or geometric visuals, which are endogenous created by the mind itself, right. Which can happen on DMT, like you say, but can also happen under a variety of other circumstances, can happen under LSD, could happen with migraines, can happen if you close your eyes and look at a stroboscope, which which is another thing that Burroughs and Geisen experimented a lot with. What, one of the scientific theories as to why that happens is that the, the geometric visual is caused by the neurons in the visual cortex directly experiencing their own structure, right? So the geometric visuals are a direct reference to the the geometrical structure of the neurons as they're laid out in the brain. And so, and what this would suggest, and this is, I guess, a controversial opinion that I have, is that I, I, I think one of the biggest problems with researching something like mysticism or esotericism is that these extraordinary experiences are said to always be mediated in some way by the brain, right? So, you know, the human brain is small and fallible and programmed and, and, uh, uh, you know, you know, imprisoned by culture and experience and all these things. So how can we, how could we trust 
the truth of anyone's particular description of the mystical. It's impossible for the mystical to fit inside anyone's mind. And I think that's a fair point. However, I think if, if we're, if we're seeing the geometric visuals, which are, I, I think a, a transcultural phenomena in a lot of mystical experience. I mean, we, we see it in lots of, we see, we see it in very ancient art. We see it in the use of entheogenic or psychedelic drugs. We see it in Jewish mysticism. We see it in Eastern mysticism. Um, if we look at the geometric visuals as the brain directly experiencing itself, I think we could possibly argue that, that geometry or at least geometric hallucinations, hallucinations of geometry that are made entirely within the brain are one of the forms of knowledge and experience, which are not mediated in any way. It's the brain directly talking to and experiencing itself in some kind of way. And this would likely be, I think one of the most primordial kinds of experiences uh, that that one could have, and and which is a reason why it's so often associated with these mystical states where people do believe they've accessed something which is incredibly and perfectly true. And at, you know, at the at the point at which it the brain directly experiencing itself, or, or let's say the visual cortex directly experiencing itself produces this experience, this unmediated experience of geometry, at what point do we say that the geometry represents the brain or the brain is geometry and therefore the being itself, the living entity itself is geometric uh, fundamentally is, is geometry before it's anything else. Uh, And, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's also the reason why um, artificial geometries like we see in ancient art or um you know in islamic art and stuff like that why they are so effective as meditational tools for achieving altered states of consciousness is that they're they're tapping into the the truth of the geometric being in and of itself yeah mandalas they're they're essentially what they're as carriers vehicles for consciousness for whatever right to to transport you to another realm and you mentioned about god perhaps being letters the pythagoreans believe god was number which what came first did numbers come first or did letters come first do we know i pythagoras would probably say that it, god is a number letter there so you it's go the, it's the it's yeah it's, it happens at the same time interesting you see how that works so it's like you're worshiping this this thing and and that you you have the tetragrammaton you have right where where god spoke reality into existence and one of the things that has always fascinated me right so we're speaking about using writing as a medium or as a gateway or as a portal if you will to entities on the other side if and again, keep in mind that the actual letters itself might be this entity. Who knows? But H.P. Lovecraft's work where there's something about the thousand and one Arabian Nights that does something to people. Because that was Geisen's restaurant name that he had. I think it was in Morocco at one point. A thousand and one Arabian Nights. And also a thousand and one Arabian Nights was H.P. Lovecraft's alleged inspiration for his alter ego, Abdul All Has Read who was the author of the fictional Necronomicon. 
where again we have this grimoire that is fictional but then you have secret groups and occult groups that use it as a literal thing they believe it was real right they believe it's a real grimoire and it works but hp lovecraft is an interesting one because i believe in in my from my research that what if these entities, right, and the, the Cthulhu mythos, the great old ones, the elder gods, the deep ones, are trying to penetrate our reality and our existence through the use of stories, through the use of letters, through the use of, of books, <laughs> literature, you know? And, and H.P. Lovecraft has always been one where he birthed, right, no pun intended, this mythos into existence and they were contacting him during an altered state of, of consciousness, which was sleep. A lot of his ideas would come from his night terrors. And if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, was Burroughs also having nightmares as well? Was at one point did I, or am I making that up? Yes. When, yes. When he was very young, yes, he had nightmares. And, oh, but it and came sometimes from, would, it came from his four from from his experience during when he was four years old, right? Where allegedly he was he had something happen with his his nanny at the time, right? Yes, what we we're not entirely sure what happened to Burroughs, but it's widely believed that he was sexually abused in some way. Um, we know we know that something happened which caused his nanny to get fired, and she was deported back to England. We're not su- we're not super sure what it is. There's multiple theories um, about it. Burroughs at one particular point was convinced that what had happened was he witnessed his nanny having a miscarriage uh, and then she, uh, he saw her burn the fetus uh, in the basement in the incinerator. It's, I mean, certainly possible. Um, It's, it would seem like a very unusual thing to happen. Um, And, you know, certainly it, you know, if, if this poor woman did have a miscarriage, it doesn't seem like that's something that she should get fired over. Yeah. Um, Barry Miles, who wrote the Burroughs biography, Call Me Burroughs, came out in 2013. His his belief is that Burroughs was forced to perform oral sex on his nanny's boyfriend, mm. which seems probably a more likely scenario for for the for, you know, the, the results of, of what happened, her getting fired. Yeah. Um, but yes, absolutely had nightmares, bad dreams. Was uh, Burroughs himself was also obsessed with dreams, kept dream journals, dreams, his own dreams appear frequently in his, his cut up writing. Um, there, there's actually a Burroughs archive here at Florida State University, which is one of the reasons why I came to do the PhD here. And there's a lot of cut ups in the archive from the 1970s. And one of the, it's interesting because it gives us it gives us a sense of the particular types of materials that he saw fit to cut up and do divination with. And one of the things that he liked to cut up was his dream journals. Wow. That that and it, that that's what I love about plot twists that you don't see coming, right? Because it is kind of cut up where it's like you and I love a good plot twist, not just any plot twist where it's like, oh, I could have seen that coming, but it's like a plot twist that just completely just baffles you and, and i can think of one or two there was this one movie about how this guy's wife was inside a computer where they had learned to transfer consciousness and the entire movie is the guy trying to stop the the 
computer company that was housing his wife's consciousness he was trying to stop them from disconnecting her because it, it was like a special time limit or something like that and then at the very end they end up disconnecting his wife but the entire time it was actually his wife that was trying to save his consciousness from being connected and he was playing this whole scenario out within the actual computer so when the movie ends and it's like oh wait it was his wife trying to save him the whole that to me is like that was great that was executed beautifully you know what i'm saying like and that's kind of sort of like cut up where you can't really trust what you're seeing or what you're reading because you don't know where to draw the line you know and i think yeah hp lovecraft was kind of sort of like that where it's very and that, i think that's what horror does and not only that but i think it's called body horror which i think burroughs had some of that where it's like grotesque aspects of you know, man, and, and, and that gore aspect and, and the description of these acts that are happening that I guess shocks is supposed to shock you and, and try to obliterate your consciousness as you're reading this and think about it. It's an initiation as you're reading this. So take that for what it is. And I wanted to talk about the grid and this is where if you have people, you, you can loosen up, Tommy, let's go a little bit crazy here for the last 30 minutes and let's speculate a little, a little bit because I'm under the impression because we're talking about these beings. So we've talked about language, etymology being a constraint. Uh, sometimes we find it hard to express ourselves with words. That's that's one indication there that language is limiting, and then you can evolve that into different mediums of right different media's to execute whatever idea you're trying to convey. You have the idea of writing as a form of divination, as a form of gateway into other realms and perhaps gateways for other entities to come in and out. And then you have the idea of the grid, which I wasn't square magic, which I wasn't aware of, went back as far as it did. I think it was 989 CE that it went back as far. The I think it was, was it the Chinese that came with it first or who was it? Anyways, have- in, in the Muslim world, it goes as far back as the 10th century, but in China, it's even before then. Yeah. So I didn't know it was that old, but if we fast forward, because you gave me like a historical background on ideas that I've been kicking around, because I like the 16th century, 15th, 17th, right? You have John D. and Edward Kelly, who... Again, that ties in everything. It ties in the geometry, it ties in the letters, the numbers, and the grids, right? So the, the grid is important in that. And it, it, some people will say, well, he was inspired by Trithemius. Or did I say it right this time? Trimetheus? Trithemius. Trithemius, yeah. Yeah. Johannes Trithemius with his stenographia, where it was, again, some people say it was code for something, you know, for, for it was... I forgot how they put it, but it was like an occult book coding something or was it whatever. Anyways, it was a secret cipher and allegedly you could use it to communicate with these angels. So it was sort of angel magic, touch, you know, tapping into other realms. John D allegedly took inspiration from that. But it's interesting about John D because Enochian has a syntax. It, it It is a real language when it's broken down by linguist and etymologist i guess is what the i forgot who was his name something dick he did the enochian encyclopedia enochian encyclopedia 
don't know if you're familiar with that, but his name was. I'm not. His name was. I'll tell you right now, so people can check it out. The Donald C. Laycock. It's the complete Enochian dictionary. He, I believe he was either a linguist or a. Anyways, he studied languages and he broke it down in Enochian that was revealed from these intermediary beings and passed down to Edward Kelly and John D was obviously the scribe has a real application. It, it, it can be used and it is used in ceremonial magic. Right. And again, if you can extract information from these, I'm not an occultist. Did you ever, and you don't have to answer, but did you ever cross the line, Tommy, when you're reading about all this craziness and you go, uh, I want to try that. Did you ever cross that line? Did you know? Did you join any secret organizations, Freemasons, whatever? And it, it, you don't have to answer the question, but did you ever cross the abyss? I, I've, I've, I've done a lot of spiritual and magical experimentation. Let's say, yeah, I've, uh, I've tr- definitely tried things, and I, I think a lot of scholars of esotericism, e- even though they, they are kind of stuck up and they, they pretend to be agnostic i think for professional reasons a, a lot of people in my field have experimented at, at some point with with the things that they study um i i have never joined a a, a particular magical order uh, in in the traditional sense although there uh, i'm i'm from sacramento california and um there's there's an OTO lodge in Sacramento um, that at, at the time was run by a couple named David and Anna Shoemaker who are uh, somewhat prominent uh, Thelemites and um, I, I used to hang out there a little bit so I, I don't I don't know this, this was qu- uh, quite some years ago probably you know more than fifteen years ago so I I, I well maybe it might be twenty I'm not sure. I, I don't know if they would recognize me these days, but I would certainly recognize them if I met them again. Interesting. I, did, I was just curious because that's a question I get asked a lot. It's like when you're reading about these grim wars and all these things, are you not tempted to try it? And it's like, yeah, it is tempting. But the grid, and, I, and I'm under the impression, I don't know if you've ever read The Secret Journal of René Descartes, and it's by Secret Journal... Uh, Rene Descartes by his name is hopefully I'm saying this right um, Amir Axel Axel and he's passed away now but it was about this secret journal that Descartes had and Leibniz the father of binary code set out to copy and find and it was this weird obscure code we never really know supposedly he cracked it but Descartes is a really interesting character to me and maybe perhaps not on paper was he an occultist or involved in any orders some people say that he was but the concept of the Cartesian coordinate system and how that itself not only is it a grid but it adds axes and and that as a vehicle for manifestation and the concept that the Platonist, right, were obsessed with geometry and kind of sort of projecting their ideas into geometric figures. I think that Descartes, through his dream, right, so so through a series of dreams, he essentially had so the the way the official narrative of history is that he had a series of dreams 
And through those series of dreams, he had figured out the the secrets, right? The, the, this, the most profound discovery ever. And then there's this other story that he figured that he came up with the coordinate system because he was he liked to sleep in and he was laying in bed one night and he was watching a fly on the wall. And he's like, hmm, how can I pinpoint how this fly is? How can I translate that? Right. Like, well, you know, C3. It's like, oh, there's the fly. And that from that, essentially, from a fly, supposedly, he came up with the Cartesian coordinate system. I think I think it came from his dreams and uh, and the dreams that he had. It was a series of dreams, which he writes about. And maybe on paper, he wasn't an occultist. I believe he was. And I have my own reasons for that. I've covered it on the show before. But the concept of him perhaps giving the key for all of essentially all of mathematics and everything through this grid and it's tied. And that's what's always fascinating me that, that it's this grid that was passed down. Who knows from from where, but he was surrounded by alchemists. And I would I would tie an alchemist with occultists. It's, it's a, in my opinion, it's a form of occultism, alchemy. But he was closely associated with a lot of alchemists and prominent ones. And the one that killed him, Christina of Sweden, who she was, had collections of various books and was surrounded by a core of alchemists. Right. I mean, some people say he was a Rosicrucian. I mean, again, there's no solid evidence that he was using mathematics as a sort of divinatory device. But I believe that he was able to come up with this Cartesian system and use mathematics as a sort of mathesis where it's like the worship of numbers. But mind you, again, we talked about at the beginning how many of these characters were even... I think Descartes was real. But how many of these characters not only were embellished or suppressed from history through writings and through the information that's passed down uh, down from them. Like NASA doesn't want you to know about Parsons and how he was singing and doing the hymn to pan before every rocket launch that doesn't look good when it's too woo woo and it's getting too close to to home so let's do the same with a whole bunch of people throughout history they were against he he was building automata and we stumbled across a book who would that i'll send to you after uh, from the 17th century where allegedly he had figured out how to project his consciousness into outer space but it's all centered around this geometry, this grid, this square magic. And if you take that, so the Cartesian coordinate system is at the core of a lot of, of everything. I mean, any, I don't know if you've ever done CAD CAM. I have, you know, 3D design. It's at the core of that. And how that's a sort of manifestation. You take this, uh, the, the architects would take these grids and all these things and they would, you know, birth these buildings that, that they referred to as their homunculi because it was... It was impregnated in their mind. From there, they took it down into a paper medium. They would make, sometimes, a lot of times, they would make models. And from there, the actual building would be erected after the fact, right? And it's all done, again, through this use of the the grid a lot of times. And Descartes, so I forgot where I was going to go with this, but the idea of Descartes tapping into something much deeper than himself. And I don't know if you know anything about Descartes or not, but do you have anything on the Cartesian coordinate system as far as, because that you can use it, right? You have the longitude and latitude system, which John D is tied to as well. And that's a sort of grid and maps back then 
not only were they to show locations of places, cartography, but they were also used as talismans. And I think it was in the cities of the Red Knight where they jizz on an, a map to find treasure. So they they charge it, and then I guess they're it comes to life and it shows them where the treasure is. I don't know. I think it was like at the end <clears throat> where everyone's going crazy. But do you have anything on the Cartesian coordinate system and perhaps it being some sort of divinatory device. Did you stumble across that during your square research your quadromancy research? I, I don't know that much about Descartes to be honest. And, and he didn't come up uh, when, when I was doing research for that article, but it, it does strike me that the Cartesian coordinates are very Pythagorean in a particular way. And that in order to make, the, the particular type of graphs, uh, you need a letter and you need a number and you need the, the regulation of these geometric shapes, these squares. And so in, in that sense, the, the graphs that you produce from Cartesian coordinates really sort of represent this Pythagorean idea of the letter number shape as this one entity that contains all of those particular things at the same time and it, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if Descartes was very interested in esoteric knowledge and alchemy and things like that you know Isaac Newton who's one of the most influential scientists ever you know likely as influential as Descartes was really interested in esoteric topics he was profoundly interested in alchemy and he was really interested in bibliomancy and using the bible as, as a form of textual divination and that stuff got buried and hidden for years. Nobody yeah. ever wanted to talk about it and people still don't want to talk about it. If you do, uh, if you go to a conference uh, today, uh, which, which is not, let's say it's not an esotericism studies conference. Let's say it's just about a, a history of science conference or a conference just about the, the life of Newton. And you start talking about alchemy or bibliomancy, there will be scholars there who will tell you that you shouldn't do this and that we shouldn't talk about this and that it's, it tarnishes the legacy of Newton. Yeah. He was also writing commentaries on the book revelation, drawing up diagrams of the temple of Solomon, right? Speaking of geometry and, and certain things like that. And yeah, it is something. Why do you think that is that they stray away from? Cause in my opinion, if we, if it wasn't for alchemy, we wouldn't have chemistry because essentially it was right. The pursuit of this philosopher's stone of these alchemists is what led to a lot of different discoveries. And it was the precursor of chemistry. But why the there's such a stigma in in, in this academic realm. And that's why a lot of them don't agree to come on the show. And I didn't see that one of your supervisors is actually. Uh, Peter Forshaw, which I'm a, a, a big fan of his work. Mm. And I think, I think I've reached out to him before. So if you want to put a, in a, a good, <laughs> a good word for me, uh, his work on, was it the, the, I forgot this guy's name. It's on one of my zines. It's on the cover of one of my zines and I can't think of it. Was it Heinrich Kunrath? Kunrath. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Heinrich Kunrath. And that concept, right? The, the perspective, uh, the, the I think it's called first-person perspective, where that kind of does something to you be, as well, because through the use of this grid kind of sort of thing, the alchemists were... So we have this evolution of media. So you have writing, 
you can use it to enter visionary states and then you have these mandalas and then these alchemists would quite literally use these paintings or these plates of lab scenes or whatever and they would enter these scenes using the geometry right in these scenes to work in those labs so it's funny how that all evolves right and it comes essentially from you see the evolution but yeah i'm very familiar with his work and i think i have reached out he's looked at my academia page one time i think he did pretty sure it was him <laughs> but why do you think that is the the stigma with wanting to get woo -woo? i don't think it takes away credibility i mean we're all human right i mean you can't you can't be i think you can't be a hundred percent stoic when it comes to these sort of topics right because they did they do come from somewhere and it comes from guys like burroughs who they push the limits they make new frontiers to be explored because they're they're pushing those lines further and further and it's paving the way for people to go up to that line and keep pushing it further and further and again you don't have to answer the question as to why it's such a stigma within the academia but do you want to give input as to why maybe they they are so hesitant to let people bring forth these two woo woo of concepts to the public, I guess. I mean, we know it's there. Yeah. I mean, there, it's, it's a really complex picture and there's a lot going on. I think a big, a big part of it comes from the, the history of Christianity and, and the history of state religions in, in the, in the Western world and in the, in the Muslim world as well, where there, there are particular ways of talking about religion that are seen as dangerous to society. And they, they carry very grave penalties. I mean, in, in the case of Al-Halaj, uh, you know, the penalty is death for, for having the wrong religion. He, even though Al-Halaj also claimed that he was Muslim and that he, and that he, and that he knew the truth about Allah, the, it was not, uh, it was not, the, it didn't jive theologically with, with the standard state perspective. And so the, and you, and you have a, a lot of, a lot of similar stuff, um, coming in in the middle ages uh, in the christian era and stuff like that and and especially one, once the new world is discovered and we we have the, the the domination of the americas the beginning of the of the colonial era and and this this intersects with also the beginning of population sciences as well and and, th and this is and this is when when witch hunts really become a big deal is, is sort of a, a, after the discovery of the new world. And, and uh, there's a, there's a really great scholar named Sylvia Federici and she, and she writes about this a lot about how uh, a lot of the fear of witchcraft was articulated with population sciences where they were, they were trying to get women to stop performing abortions and so one of the ways in which they could do this was talking about how abortion was uh, the the province of the witch and witchcraft, right? And so get it, it's it's a it's a way of it's a way of justifying the state's interests through religious aesthetics, 
And, and, we, and we see this in the Americas as well, uh, in, in the sense that what, what, one of the reasons why, how Europeans were able to justify their domination of, of the indigenous Americans is that they're not Christian, right? So it's for, it's for their own good that we bring them Christianity. And, and then eventually this gets articulated with professional medicine, uh, and so, so not not just uh, within Europe proper, professional medicine is in, influential to witch hunts, but it's also influential to the the colonization of Indigenous Americans. In in the sense that a, a lot of Indigenous medicine is reliant on altered states of consciousness and on contact with particular e- intermediary beings for the purposes of healing. And it, initially, if we're talking 15th, early 16th century, this is coming from a very Christian, dogmatic, religious perspective. But by the time we get to the 19th century, it's, it's often justified through purely secular medical means, right? So we need, to, we need to break these people of their indigenous, of their traditional spiritualities, because they don't have the proper medicine. Right. They don't they don't have, quote unquote, professional medicine. Right. Only we can give this to them. And so I I think and I and I think that that perspective borrows from Christian dogma and uh, to, to a certain extent, may, maybe not explicitly in, in its own in its own representation of itself. It certainly borrows the same attitude from from Christian dogma that. You know, it's it's for indigenous 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 excuse me indigenous Americans' own good, right? That we take away their their we take their religion from them. Uh, but this, I mean, this idea that that professional medicine should be forced upon you at the expense of your tradition, uh, I I think this is alive and well in in our society today. And and it's I th- I think this is influential to the stigma that we have around strange religion, in in the sense that allowing people to to believe something which is not part of a professional code of population science, which professional medicine is certainly part of population science today, is is a is not only a threat to them and their health and their population. But it's it's now, and especially in the COVID area, it's it's an effect on all of us, right? We're we're all in this together. So therefore, forcing particular knowledge upon you also requires stripping you of the knowledge that you had, right? And I, and I think probably probably most of the scholars that would have this stigma of Newton being an alchemist or Newton being a bibliomancer, they would they would never say all of that explicitly and they, and probably most of them would tell you that they've never thought anything like that in their life and they don't actually believe in any of that and you know i i'm we can't project any of that onto them which is fair enough but i i think the the stigma is a dogma and it does have a legacy in in the colonial project and and in 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 the in the dogma of professional medicine and the dogma of population science that was very effective for for the colonial project what if that's another form of this 
let le- I guess letter letter parasite or what I what I dubbed it. I don't know if if I if there is anything else. And I looked it up, but grammatical entities, right? These these things that pop forth from how you know we're talking about information. We're talking about writing. It's all about information. It's about the suppression of information, and you can apply that to anything and everything essentially throughout life because that includes religion that includes medicine that includes everything regular life everything and what if that's you know another one another one of these aspects of like it trying to take over in some sort of way but then that would imply that there are entities archons that are trying to take over and then archons is a archons is a weird one because it's a gnostic view and then that would that would insinuate that this reality is a false reality and that we're living in a simulation right so that 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 went to people it puts them off like when you talk about gnosticism and and simulation theory and all these things because it's like well then is any of this real are you a boltzmann's brain as i always ask people like are you just a blip in existence for one second in your entire lifetime i think it's like when people take salvia and they, they live an entire lifetime and they remember the whole thing it's really scary but had a couple miscellaneous questions was was burrows ever because there's this idea that a lot of these uh, these people and these concepts that they're bringing forth are tied to governmental governmental agencies three-letter agencies because I know he was in touch with Leary and a couple other interesting figures. Does he have any links to, because it seems like a lot of these occultists were also spies. And they're kind of planted in culture to to make these crazy movements, right? Like a Crowley was MI6 or MI5, whatever he was. Is there any connections with Burroughs and three-letter agencies at all or governmental? Because he went to Harvard. I mean, that's a that's pretty up there. You know what I mean? And a lot of these guys are set up like they have inheritances and they have all the time in the world to sit in a hotel with his buddies to do seances and scrying for hours upon end. And do all these things to conjure up and open up portals to other realms. And then there's the devil manifesting in front of them. Well, all these crazy things. Is there any evidence that he was tied to any three-letter agencies? Was he a spy? Do you have anything on that? Uh, well, it's it's an interesting question. He, it's been theorized that he was secretly CIA. So we, we know that Burroughs... Uh, as a young man in his twenties was floating around and trying lots of different things. So, and was jet was generally competent at most of these things, but never really fell in love or became a master of any of them. So he was a private investigator. At one point he worked as an exterminator. exterminator. At one point he worked as a journalist. He, he went to medical school and then dropped out. He went to, um, uh, an anthrop- he got into an anthropology program and dropped out, a couple of anthropology programs and dropped out. One of the things that he tried in this era was he, he actually did apply to go to the OSS, which was the, the precursor to the CIA. According to Burroughs, he, his application was denied. Um, and supposedly, 
according to him, there was somebody he knew from Harvard who was working in the OSS at the time. And he claims that this guy never liked him. And that's why he didn't get into the OSS. But uh, so that that's kind of the official story. Um, but it's there. There's there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there yeah. about right. How true is any of that? And there's um, I, f- I found this one article which uh, which amused me greatly. It was it was on a um, I, f- I forget what it was. It was on some particular right wing website, and it basically was just talking about how like it's all bullshit. Burroughs was definitely CIA, and uh, Joan his his wife who was accidentally shot in the head during a William Tell performance in Mexico City, 1951. That it was actually not an accident, he claims. Joan was assassinated because she was, she was an agent, right? Oh, and Burroughs was, a count, you know, Burroughs was a counter agent. And so she had, you know. <laughs> so there, there's, there's definitely a lot of stuff out there um, where, where people would disagree with, with the official story. Yeah, and... and- the wife story you believe the the was it the william tell act you believe that it went down like that because a gay man i guess he was bisexual right if well we don't know if he was having relations with his wife but that would make sense where you could use a, a wife as a cover and she knew what he was doing he was falling in love with boy toys you know and and wherever he was at and so wow and i i haven't dove into that aspect of the conspiracy, but it, from my research and from the com- community, a lot of, they like to talk about how a lot of this alien talk nowadays and inter even interdimensional beings are a, a plant of these three letter agencies. Cause you have the famous Ronald Reagan speech where it's like, if we could all come together, if there was some sort of alien invasion, it's like, well, that's evolved over time. It's like, are these interdimensionals? Are these ultra-terrestrials? Are these extraterrestrials? Like, what's going on? Well, leave it up for the people to figure it out. On Let's let the people birth these egregoric beings into existence. And then you have Carl Jung talking about, like, yo, these are projections of our psyche. Projections of our subconscious. Like, what? So, and it just starts with one thing. Like, just talk about it. And then it'll it'll develop and... And that's why I'm very careful with what I say, not to be superstitious, but very careful with what I say, very careful with, be careful, what is it, careful what you wish for, right? They tell you that. And there was that one talk of Burroughs where he's talking about the wishing machine and he's talking about the monkey paw story. And it's like, well, he's, he's like, and he, he keeps saying, he's like, I wouldn't wish for something like infinite knowledge or no, no, for infinite money. He's like, that's, that's. Cause he got the blueprint for this wishing machine that he said that he tried and he did some like weird experiments with it. And he's, he keeps saying like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish for something so stupid, like infinite money. I would ask for something. He's like talking to kind of telling you like, yo, have you ever do encounter like an intermediary being, make sure you ask for like wisdom or for something not, that's not money. Don't ask for money. Cause Edward Kelly tried to ask for money and the angels got pissed off. So don't do that. At one point in time, he, he did ask him for for some money because he was in a bind. But Tommy, did you have any closing thoughts? Thank you for risking your reputation to come on this podcast and <laughs> speak with me today. 
I had a lot of fun. Hopefully I didn't ramble on too much. But yeah, do you have any closing thoughts before we we leave the people and plug your stuff again for the people if they want to follow you on academia and anything you want to leave them with? Yeah, well, first of all, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. I also had a lot of fun. Yeah, and I guess my my overall mission in writing about people like William Burroughs, but also uh, David Lynch now a little bit and WB Yeats, and 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 this this is a reason why I think podcasts like this are so great, is that there there is this stigma about esoteric religion, about heterodox religion or weird religion, and and definitely a stigma about people who have had what we could call supernatural or extraordinary experiences. But I think if we really look at it, it's it's not that uncommon. Right. It's not that uncommon for people to have extraordinary experiences, not that uncommon for people to have weird beliefs. And I think if we can look at these canonical, highly regarded literary figures like Yeats and Pound and Joyce, but also Burroughs and Ginsburg and Plath and, uh, you know, say people like Ishmael Reed, if we can see that weird religion produces these literary masterpieces right it's it's a way of part of normalizing the weird to to speak about it sort of paradoxically and i think that's something that's that's super important to do because otherwise we end up with the satanic panic and and damian eccles and we end up with people doing time for things they didn't do absolutely i'm with you there to a certain extent tommy i think that <laughs> there are lines that need to be drawn but again who am i I'm I'm just a podcaster. I know nothing, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you again. To to there is a lot of things that put me off when it comes to a lot of these occultists. But if it wasn't for them, you know, I, I I try to be as unbiased as I can be when it comes to any subject that I speak about. I do have my core beliefs and values that I keep to myself, but I I, I like having interesting conversations. And I like to talk to different people and hear their perspective. And it's okay if we don't agree on everything, but at least you were mature enough and open enough to have, because a lot of people don't even want to talk to, right? We're so divided, not just politically, but in so many ways. And people can't even come together to have conversations anymore. And, and you know, I think it's important to speak about things and be able to learn as much as you can, not, not, maybe not learn everything, how my five-year-old thinks that you can know everything in the entire world. And kids really, when they ask you certain questions, you go, how did you even come up with this? Like, who are you? And sometimes I'll look at my kids and be like, who were you guys in the past life? Like, where'd you, you know, where'd you come from? So when, when my five-year-old asked me, he's like, do you know every, he asked me, he thinks I know everything. Cause you know, you're, you're fixing things for them and you're helping them out. And I thought to myself, I go, I told him, I said, I don't know everything. He goes, well, why not? And I said, damn, can you imagine, Tommy? Can you imagine knowing everything in the entire world? Knowing all cosmologies, all religions, everything that there could ever be to know, just knowing it. That would be crazy. That would be wild to know absolutely everything. And I was like, yeah, there's just no way you can. He's like, no, but who says you can't? I go... There's a, there's a lot you still have to learn, little Padawan, right? Young Padawan. So, Tommy, I'm going to have to have you back on again. I Once I finish 
Twin Peaks. I want to have you back on to talk about it because I'm on. I'm almost done with season two. I'm like episode 20, 20 of season two. So I'm almost done. And I hear season three is I'm going to watch the movie Fire Walk with me after season two. And then I think there's another movie after that. Right. There's another movie. Was there a second movie? I think there's just one movie, but yeah, there's season three is quite long and all the episodes are an hour. Yikes. All right. Well, we're going to do this. We're going to power. There's a book too, isn't there? Yes. Oh, there's a, there's a couple of books. Oh, there's a couple books. Oh yeah. The books are good. I, I was told that it was going to be a grind and I'm here for it. I'm, I'm grinding it out. And the first season was an initiation. I got past the first season and I need to be rewarded once I get to the end of this tunnel. So we'll see. But once I finish that, Tommy, I'll hit you up. And if you'd like, you're going to get plenty of good feedback from my people. My people are good people and they're open-minded. So hopefully you'll be up for coming on again and talking to us. I'll make sure to post your links in the description. Tommy, again, thank you so much for being here with me tonight. And as always, everyone, make sure to follow the show on social media at the one-on-one podcast, tjojp.com. Call in, leave a voicemail. I'll play it on the show, 407-476-4606. Patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast. If you're a YouTube member, shout out to you. Appreciate you. And as always, everyone, see you on the other side.